Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I'm John Quinn Hill. This is The Weeds. If you turn on your TV, open your phone, or probably even talk with a neighbor, there's a good chance that the Israel-Hamas war and the response to it will come up. Everywhere you turn, there's a different reaction. But there's one in particular making its way down all my social media feeds that feels different from all the other responses. It's called BDS, short for Boycott, Divest, Sanction. If you've seen it, it's likely alongside a list of companies. You'll see logos for a few of them, like Hewlett Packard and SodaStream, alongside calls to boycott. Some lists floating around on social media are even longer. They include corporations like Starbucks and McDonald's, Google and Amazon. And you may be asking yourself, what do these companies have to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict? Why are people telling me not to support them? And like just about everything related to this conflict, it's complicated and controversial. And though the traction might be new, the movement itself isn't. Today on The Weeds, the BDS movement, the history of the boycott, and the effectiveness of economic protests. To get deeper into the basics of BDS and why it's so contentious, I sat down with one of my colleagues. Hi, my name is Wizzy Kim, and I'm a senior reporter at Vox. I write a lot about consumer trends, about the economy, about inequality, just a bunch of different things, depending on the day. You recently wrote an explainer for Vox about BDS, otherwise known as Boycott, Divest, Sanction. What are the core demands of this movement? So the core demands, there are three One would be for Israel to stop occupying Palestinian territories. That would include uh, the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. And also dismantling the wall that's been built along the West Bank. The second demand is for Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel to have equal rights under Israeli law. And then the third demand is to allow displaced Palestinian refugees to come back home. I want to tease out each of these initials. What does boycotting, divesting, and sanctioning each look like in practice? So boycotting, I think, is the part that most of us are most familiar with. And that would just be, hey, I'm not going to buy anything from X company or I'm not going to use a certain kind of service. That would be a personal sort of consumer boycott. 
And then you have divestment. And divestment gets into where are we investing money? You know, where are banks investing their money? Where are different companies investing their money? And things like pension funds, 401ks, these often have a bunch of companies that they sort of invest in to you know, create a return for their, their clients, right? And so divestment looks at all of that and says, hey, we should exclude Israeli companies or companies that, that help Israel oppress Palestinians and refrain from giving them this capital. And then the last part, sanctions. That's something the government would do, right? So governments could impose an arms embargo where we decide we're not going to give weapons to um, Israel. We're not going to sell weapons to Israel. We could do an economic sanction on Israel the way that the U.S. has already done on um, many different countries around the world. For example, when the Ukraine-Russia war uh, started, there were a lot of economic sanctions imposed, not just on the Russian government, but also on powerful individuals in Russia that had ties to Putin. So those are the sort of three approaches um, in BDS. Okay, so we're obviously hearing about this now because of the Israel-Hamas war, but the BDS movement is not new. When and how did this start? Yeah, BDS is almost 20 years old. It started in 2005, and it was started and is led by Palestinian people, which I think is kind of important to emphasize. The original call to boycott in 2005 came from a coalition of something like 170 Palestinian civil society groups. So that includes, you know, advocacy groups, uh, trade unions, human rights groups, student groups in Palestine. And it's a pretty broad coalition of Palestinians. And from the get-go, they were sort of inspired by anti-apartheid movements, uh, specifically the South African anti-apartheid movement. What are some of the companies on the boycott list for BDS? And how are they singling these companies out? Different groups might focus on different companies because, you know, BDS isn't a single organization. It's a movement. It's a strategy. Some advocacy groups might have a list of 100 companies that they think egg on or help the oppression of Palestinians. But right now, uh, the resurgence of BDS actually focused on McDonald's and Starbucks. That's what's sort of been in the news. And the reason is that McDonald's, apparently a local franchise in Israel, was giving free donations of food to uh, soldiers in the IDF. Some other global fast food chains also did something similar and caught some flack for it. But BDS, the BDS National Committee, that coalition of Palestinians that I mentioned earlier, they really try to hone in on just a few really big corporations. So if you look on their website, the biggest one right now is Hewlett Packard, the American company. We probably have heard about them through like their printers and laptops, things like that. But they also have an IT arm that develops, you know, technology that other companies and governments might use. And in the case of Israel, BDS participants are arguing that HP creates this tech that the Israeli government uses to create an, a biometric ID system. And that helps them kind of surveil and restrict the movement of Palestinians, particularly in the West Bank, aiding, uh, again, their occupation of these territories. So that's why HP is a focus. And I think, again, it's important to note, these are not just randomly targeted companies. And often they're not even Israeli companies. They're really trying to go for the biggest fish. I think that's so interesting. How has HP responded to that? 
HP has basically said, first of all, the sort of separate company that deals with IT services is separate. It's not the HP that you might be familiar with in in the U.S. That's one thing they emphasize. And then the other thing they say is, look, we regularly monitor and make sure that we are like respecting human rights. You know, kind of, I would say, a cookie cutter statement saying like, we're not actually trying to support any human rights abuses, but that's pretty much the extent of what they said. So for those of us that are chronically online, like we know what BDS is, but how big or well-known is this movement overall, particularly here in America? I think it's more well-known in some circles than others. In the U.S., I was actually surprised to learn, you know, based on a Pew survey of over 10,000 U.S. adults last year, something like 84% said they knew very little or had never heard of BDS, which was surprising to me. But part of that might just be the terminology itself. You hear BDS and you're sort of like, okay, well, I have no idea what that's about. But, you know, most Americans know about the concept of a boycott, right? We engage in boycotts all the time. So if you just told someone, hey, we're boycotting the Israeli government, that is probably more familiar than just saying, hey, I'm a BDS participant. So BDS, like all things related to this conflict, is extremely controversial. And there are actually a couple of reasons for that. Lay out for us what those controversies are. There are a lot of controversies and criticisms of BDS, but the biggest that it gets is that it's anti-Semitic. The argument for why some people think BDS is anti-Semitic is basically that they say meeting the three demands of this boycott, sanctioning and um, divestment would basically amount to an end to Jewish self-determination in Israel. There would be no more Jewish state in Israel. So, you know, they're saying you're questioning our right to exist. That's the biggest concern that opponents of BDS have. Whether you agree with that or not, that's going to vary a lot. Um, But this is the main attack against it. And then kind of stemming from the accusation that it's anti-Semitic, some groups say you're supporting terrorism if you support BDS. And that's kind of a strong accusation to make against someone, right? But we know that in the past... Advocacy groups who have aligned with BDS, they've gotten sued actually for materially supporting terrorism. And their argument is, oh, some of these BDS groups in Palestine, they're actually aiding Hamas and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. This case, I believe, um, was thrown out. It was dismissed. But yeah, these are the sort of attacks against BDS. There's also an argument that it harms Palestinians. Could you talk about that argument a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So that argument that it hurts Palestinians would say, you know, boycotts, they're not just going to hurt Israel and Israelis because, you know, the economy is pretty interlinked. Uh, Palestinians work in Israel. They cross uh, into Israel all the time and on a daily basis sometimes. So you're not just going to target uh, Israelis. And again, that might be compelling to some people. But I do want to note that a lot of these arguments were used against anti-apartheid struggles in South Africa. Today, we're going to explore the B in BDS, the boycott. But what about the divest and sanction pieces of that? Specifically, there's an argument to be made that those are the more powerful and, you know, influential parts of this movement. Those are the things that would probably actually affect change. 
Yeah, and I think that's a very reasonable and understandable view to have of it. I sort of take it as almost a ramping up to sanctions. Boycotts are very personal. Anyone can start boycotting, right? But unless we have the sort of critical mass of people, of individual citizens, ordinary people boycotting for a very specific political reason, I think it's harder to then get to the divestment part and harder to get to the sanctions part, right? So I think that's one of BDS's tactics. They're trying to first raise awareness around the boycotts. And then divestment, again, that takes a little more organization and a collective effort. What are some of the big takeaways you have from reporting this out? I think BDS, it's a hard thing to accomplish, right? You know, getting to the point where the U.S. or other nations might be imposing sanctions on Israel, we don't know how long that might take. But I think boycotts can often highlight the interconnection and complicity of all of these various corporations and institutions that we rely on. Why do you think this movement is resonating with people right now? First of all, it's been ongoing. The Israeli siege on Gaza has been ongoing for about a month now, right? And I think especially if you are far away from the conflict, you might feel quite helpless. Um, How can I help people suffering right now, Palestinians suffering right now? So I think a lot of people hear this and think, well, this is one way that I could actually join a political movement to help Palestinians from thousands of miles away. I think it's so interesting, you know, that it's money that's coming up. I just wonder what this and all of the other sort of boycott movements we see say about the relationship we have between politics, policy, and money. I think it is an acknowledgement that money is the engine of so much power. And power unfortunately, is often concentrated into the hands of a very few people and institutions, right? So we, the ordinary people, the masses, how many opportunities do we have to kind of stand against such an enormous power, so much money? And I think for better or for worse, I mean, probably for the worse, we often feel like we have the most voice as consumers, And this is one way to actually at least use that to achieve something good for people who are suffering and who are oppressed. Wizzy Kim, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. Thank you for having me. So those are the basics of BDS. But for all the controversy, it begs the question, do boycotts even work in the first place? Next, we explore the B in BDS. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. 
They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. We're back. Before the break, we talked with Vox's Wizzy Kim about BDS, what it is, its history, and why it's getting so much attention. Now, we're going to get into some of the larger implications of boycotts and whether or not they really do anything. So I called someone who's an expert on boycotts and their impacts. My name is Lawrence Glickman. I'm a professor of history and American studies at Cornell University, and uh, I've written five books, but the one I think most relevant for today's conversation is called Buying Power, A History of Consumer Activism in America. So we're talking about boycotts and we're talking to you. Tell us more about your expertise in this area. When I began my book on the history of consumer activism, I was essentially interested in the history of boycotting. And I noticed that there were big gaps in that history We knew something about boycotts around the time of the American Revolution and something about 20th century boycotts, especially the Montgomery bus boycott. But historians hadn't really thought about boycotting as a long-term political tradition. And that's what I wanted to explore. And in the course of my research, I discovered that indeed it was, that we have a near-continuous history of Uh, various forms of consumer activism, particularly boycotting, dating back to the American Revolution, continuing to the present day. The million-dollar question is, do boycotts actually work? Right. Um, And that question depends on how you define work, I guess. I'm going to be the annoying academic and say, we have to define our terms more carefully. I think boycotts often do work, but usually not in the way they set out to do, and that it's really important to think about what we mean by an effective boycott. What do you think people mean when they say effective boycott? I think usually we think of individual boycotts um, achieving a goal which often is economically punishing a company such that it changes its behavior. And I think it's very rare that that actually happens, but 
boycotts often work in unexpected ways, um, usually by raising and changing political consciousness. And um, I think a key aspect of that is that we are all connected to each other and boycotts help us see those connections and help us sometimes see our connections to things that we might find immoral. What does it take for a boycott to actually work? I think what it takes is to change people's conceptions of politics and to change our conception of what we can do to rethink a political question. So oftentimes a boycott will work. You know, it won't necessarily be an effective strike against the company's bottom line, but it will raise consciousness about a political issue and often force that company to react and change their public relations and um, also make something a viable political issue. So you say that there are two models of boycotts. What are those two models? Well, the two models that I see working, having studied these actions for a very long time, are on the one hand, very local models of boycotts in which oftentimes a small business will be targeted by a community that surrounds that business and that business is forced to change its policies. An example of that were um, the so-called labor boycotts of the 1880s. This is right around the time the term boycott was invented. And uh, there were hundreds of these, even thousands, that took place in the United States, where usually in working class communities, the workers who surrounded a business would engage in a boycott to get that business to change its behavior, maybe by raising wages or maybe by recognizing a union. And because the main consumers of that business were the local working class population, their threat of withdrawal of consumption was very significant and business owners were often forced to agree to working class terms. So that's one model that often works. The other model is kind of the other end of the spectrum, which are boycotts that are not necessarily really aimed at a company's bottom line, but are aimed at getting people to think differently, maybe to see their own connection to something that is unethical or immoral. You know, we see many examples of that in the present day. Most boycotts, I think, today take that form. And I think a good example of that might be the boycotts of the Nike Corporation that took place in the 1990s and subsequently, which were about Nike's reliance on low-wage sweatshop labor to produce sneakers. And that was a real contrast with Nike's advertising, which was all about uplifting people and being kind of a progressive, healthy corporation. Boycotters were able to show there was a disjunction between the message of the company and the reality of the company. And moreover, that individual consumers, by buying Nike sneakers, were maybe participating in a system that they might have viewed as unethical. And um, I think that sort of boycott is the kind that we see most commonly today. Boycotts here in the U.S. have a very long history. What are some of the other most well-known ones? I know people tend to think, oh, Montgomery. Like, I think in history class, like, that's everyone's kind of first introduction to the term. Absolutely. I mean, that was pretty much the only boycott I ever learned about through even university. The Montgomery bus boycott, you know, could be put down as probably the most effective 
as well as the most famous boycott in American history. The leadership of the Montgomery NAACP, along with a relatively new minister in town named Martin Luther King, decided the way to protest Rosa Parks' arrest and to protest this system of segregation was to engage in a boycott of the municipal bus system of Montgomery. At present, we are in the midst of a protest, the Negro citizens of Montgomery, representing some uh, 44% of the population. 90% at least of the regular Negro bus passengers are staying off the buses, and we plan to continue until something is done. We should remember that the bus boycott began in the wintertime, when even in Montgomery, it was quite cold. So this was a boycott that required a tremendous amount of community support and participation and logistical help. And there were thousands of people, literally, who not only boycotted the buses, but gave aid and support to those who were trying to organize alternative systems of transportation, raising funds, and so forth, making this a nationally known event. I would say the other one that's quite well known, although not often necessarily described as a boycott, is the actions of the American revolutionaries, the Boston Tea Party, dumping the tea in the harbor, punishing merchants who sold British tea as part of the revolutionary struggle. Oftentimes, these are the two that we hear about. But there were also many other ones, some quite large and powerful, that have kind of been forgotten by history. My favorite thing that I uncovered in my research, I didn't discover it, other people had written about it, but I learned about it myself. Beginning in the 1820s, abolitionists began to wonder how they could effectively stop what they called the slave power. And they began to come up with this idea that Northern consumers were very largely responsible for the system of slavery because they were buying goods made with cotton produced by slave labor. They were using sugar grown by enslaved people and so forth. And that the way to stop this was to give consumers an alternative. And they set up these free produce stores, the first one opening in 1826. And the idea was, we will sell goods that are made by free labor. That's why they were called free produce stores. The idea was to give consumers an option that would be better fitting with their own ethics, but also they very optimistically believed would ultimately bring down the system of slavery because they thought most slave owners are economically rational people. And if they see that consumers would rather buy goods by free labor, they will slowly but inexorably give up on employing slave labor and they will employ free labor. Now, these free produce stores did not work very effectively. Most of them were very short-lived failures. But I think that they were very politically significant, mainly because they led Northern people who might have felt unconnected to the system of slavery. They might have seen slavery as a system that they deplored, but that they had no responsibility for. To begin to see that actually I am connected to the system of slavery. In fact, in, in the United States, you couldn't be unconnected because slavery was such an important part of the economy. And so I think over time, that was one of the things that led many Americans to see slavery not only as an immoral system, but an immoral system that they were implicated in. 
I also asked Larry about a particular example of U.S. consumers boycotting another country over its policies. There was a very popular global boycott of Japanese silk that took place in the late 1930s after Japan invaded China and was turning fascists. And uh, a lot of people in the United States and elsewhere wanted to register disapproval of that. And the main export of Japan at that time was silk. The main way silk was used was in stockings. So there were a whole series of boycott events, uh, including non-silk fashion shows uh, that took place to try to get American women consumers in particular to stop buying Japanese silk. How did that boycott end? What happened? What happened was ultimately Franklin Roosevelt, the president of the United States, called for an embargo of Japan. So that was one of those rare cases where actions of individuals and groups beginning in 1937, became large enough and powerful enough and also kind of cohered with U.S. government policy as World War II began in Europe and uh, American entrance hadn't yet happened but was on the horizon, that President Roosevelt began to engage in state economic coercion. And one example of that was the embargo of Japanese goods. So, you know, you could say that that was one of those rare boycotts that had a pretty clear and straight and victorious trajectory. So those are some of the many successful boycotts and movements we've seen in the past, but most boycotts don't actually work. Why is that? It's because I think it's very, very difficult to get enough consumers to affect the bottom line of a large company. And most boycotts are aimed at large companies or sometimes they're aimed at states or even nations. And, you know, you need quite a huge number of people to participate. I think that's one factor. Many, many boycotts also are short-lived. People get excited about them for a little bit, but it's really hard to get consumers to change their consuming practices over the long term. They might want to do it for a week or so, but then it can become difficult, especially if you can't find an alternative product that you like. The other thing is that there are just so many darn boycotts at any given moment. Even as late as the 1880s, I have um, uh, letters from people saying, you know, I'm a labor union member and I really want to support other workers, but I have in my pocket a list of 400 boycotts um, that I've been asked to participate in. I can't possibly keep track of all these, <laughs> let alone join them. It's very logistically difficult sometimes. So it really helps sometimes if there's a very specific focus that takes precedence over other possible boycotts. But uh, very often, the vast majority of boycotts have been short-lived failures, I would say. You mentioned that, you know, we don't really like changing our spending patterns. Is that something uniquely American or do we see that across the globe now? That's a great question. I've, I've really mostly studied American boycotting patterns. And I do think that research shows that Americans turn to boycotting more than any other people. Uh, it's, a, it's a kind of political protest that Americans are prone to turn to maybe more than other countries for reasons we can discuss. But I do think it has something to do with the depth of our consumer society. 
So I think one of the major domestic boycotts that got a lot of attention this past year was that a lot of conservative voters boycotted Bud Light. And, you know, their bottom line was hurt. What made that boycott different? A lot of people assume incorrectly that boycotts are generally progressive. Um, In other words, that they support progressive causes. Um, And I think because of things like Montgomery and the United Farm Workers, that tends to be the assumption. But if you look at history, there have been quite a lot of boycotts that we would today label as being inspired by conservative reasons or causes. But I kind of have egg in my face about the Bud Light boycott because when it began, I got called by a lot of journalists and I said, this is probably going to be a flash in the pan like most other boycotts. I really doubt it will be successful. But you're absolutely right. It did affect Anheuser-Busch's bottom line, Anheuser-Busch being the parent company of Bud Light. And I think it had to do with a kind of perfect storm of events that came together. And boycotts occasionally can have this impact where they really kind of represent the politics of the moment in a way that a lot of people want to join and be a part of. And I think the Bud Light boycott was one of those tipping point moments where it seemed to represent something that a lot of people were heated up about, but didn't necessarily have an outlet to express it. This gave them an outlet. And uh, the fact that it was very strongly amplified in conservative media really helped. When it comes to boycotts, it might seem like the goal is to make pockets hurt. But that's not always the end goal. After the break, more about the boycott as a political message. Support for The Weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Okay, Larry, we've talked about this a little bit already. Boycotts are an economic tool, but you think they are fundamentally political. How so? In the United States, It's hard to separate economics and politics for one thing. And also Americans, as a consumer society, we've often expressed our preferences 
political preferences through economics. But the main reason I think boycotts are primarily political is because I think the main job of most boycotts is not necessarily to harm a company being boycotted, but to raise political consciousness about an issue, to get people riled up about an issue that is fundamentally political more than economic. And a way to get effective change in the United States is often to get people to see it as a tangible political issue that can be changed. Oftentimes that means getting a company to change their behavior. Sometimes it means getting more and more people to see an issue that they might not have thought of as political as being in fact political and that they therefore have some responsibility to weigh in on. Sometimes companies position themselves as good in part because they want to align themselves with certain causes or consumers. You know, I think Ben and Jerry's a good example. Hobby Lobby, also a good example. Like those are two companies with very different politics, but politics nonetheless. What are your thoughts on that approach to political capitalism? You know, most companies, obviously what they want is the most possible number of consumers. And so they're not necessarily wanting to position themselves politically. But I do think that more and more we've seen companies want to market themselves as ethical, as serving interests that a lot of Americans are concerned about, such as the environment. In the case of Hobby Lobby, being seen as family-friendly or maybe even pro-Christian. Um, that's the market that they're aiming at. I think companies want to be seen as on the side of popular causes. And so one of the things we saw beginning in the late 20th century is many companies positioning themselves as green, as environmentally friendly, sometimes as healthy and organic. In the case of Nike and other sportswear companies and the, and sneaker companies as being healthy and about people achieving their potential. In the case of Bud Light, I think they've tried to position themselves as an American patriotic company. So it is the case, I think, that many companies try to position themselves in a way that we can broadly define as political. And that's one of the reasons why they are very fearful of Boycotts, because boycotts can chip away at that self-positioning that they work so hard to maintain. So we started this episode by talking with my colleague, Wizzy Kim, about BDS, which we now know targets companies it sees as complicit in Israel's occupation of the Palestinian territories of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. I'm curious to hear any thoughts you have about broad boycott directives like this. Does that make them more powerful or does that hinder them in their goals? I think boycotts like BDS are complicated and it remind, they remind me a little bit of the boycotts of states in the United States in that the target is very broad and involves many, many companies, some of which may have a you know more tenuous connection to the issue being boycotted. But I think they're a good example of boycotts being used to raise political consciousness. I think, I mean, I'm not an expert on BDS, but my sense is that the prime mover there is to get people to see that many corporations around the world have a presence in occupied territories 
and so forth and try to get people to see those connections and and protest those connections. So I think that it's maybe a little bit less direct than, say, the boycott of Bud Light that we talked about, where you're targeting a specific company for specific actions. This is the connections can be a little bit less direct, but at the same time, just kind of raising broader consciousness about a political issue has always been part of what boycotters try to do. Like Larry said, he's not an expert on BDS, but I wanted to get his thoughts on anti-BDS legislation. 37 states have passed anti-BDS laws, and earlier this year, Senator Marco Rubio introduced an anti-BDS piece of legislation in the Senate— The legislation varies, but the basic gist is that it prevents companies that work as government contractors from refusing to work with the Israeli government, Israeli institutions, or Israeli settlements. Proponents of these laws have various reasons for supporting the legislation. Israel is a close American ally in the Middle East, and some argue that the BDS movement is anti-Semitic. Larry, though, is pushing back against these policies. He signed on to amicus briefs opposing these laws. I asked him why. I participated in a number of amicus briefs arguing that boycotts should not be outlawed, BDS in particular, or seen as unconstitutional. And mainly what I've tried to do is say that even though I personally don't support the BDS movement, I think it's very much in keeping with the American tradition of boycotting. And what I've done in my briefs is to just outline that history and to show that this is, I think, should be protected political speech and that it is really not fundamentally different than uh, the kinds of boycotts that have existed throughout our history. And that it's somewhat, it's very complicated and opens a can of worms to say some kinds of boycotts are constitutional and others are not. I can imagine certain boycotts that would cross that line. I'm not saying that they don't exist, but I think the bar has to be pretty high. And I don't see it in the case of the BDS movement. When people talk about BDS, they often point to South Africa and the end of apartheid as a comparison. But when it came to the end of apartheid, there were so many moving parts, including the end of the Cold War. That was a major factor. Do we know what impact that economic pressure actually had or that economic pressure actually has when it comes to, you know, these larger global policies? I'm not an expert on the South African boycott movement, but I do think that that was a very effective boycott movement. I think what also really helped was that the Reagan administration in the 1980s proposed what they called constructive engagement with South Africa. And what they said was that it would be better if American companies went to South Africa and, you know, tried to shape things within the apartheid system by having policies that were less racist than the apartheid system. I think most Americans didn't really buy that. They thought this is a case where we have an immoral regime and they didn't really want American businesses to be invested in a country that had a system that was very widely decried as racist and uh, kind of against basic American values. And so I think the combination of dissatisfaction with that policy, 
led uh, many Americans to engage in various kinds of protests, including boycotting. But not only that, there were all kinds of campus protests, all kinds of protests against Americans' foreign policy. So this was kind of a perfect storm moment. I think you're right. The uh, external political events played a role, such as the end of the Cold War as well. But I think boycotting was one of the initial ways that got Americans and people around the world once again to see that they might have had a personal connection to a regime that they abhorred. And that one way to express their protest about that was to support a boycott that would allow them both individually and collectively to kind of say, not in my name, I don't I don't want to buy goods that would appear to endorse a system that I personally and we as a community find immoral. We've focused our conversation on the B and BDS in part because that's the part that gets the most attention and also because the likelihood of major players divesting from and or sanctioning Israel just seems incredibly low. Like that just seems like something that's not going to happen policy-wise for a lot of nations. How powerful are boycotts in relation to those bigger economic impacts that countries and companies can make? I mean, you know, you've, you've studied these individual actions, but how powerful are those individual actions in relations to these bigger actions that take place? You know, that's a fantastic question. And I think boycotts are all about what I call in my book, Buying Power, the creation of long-distance solidarity. Mm. What I mean by that is that we tend to think of consumption as the ultimate individualistic action. You know, I go to the store and I buy something because I personally prefer it, or it's my favorite brand of chocolate or coffee or whatever. But what I think what boycotts try to do is take the individual and make it collective. And there's a lot of contingency in that. Most social movements of any kind, not just boycotts, don't work because it's very, very hard to turn individual behavior into some sort of collective cause. And we, we've seen that work many times in American history, such as the civil rights movement, which employed boycotts, but also used other tactics to bring people together. And I think that's what we're seeing with national, state, or even global boycott campaigns. Um, and I would say that they do sometimes work, but it often requires many factors to come together at the same time. So boycotts in isolation usually require other factors. Uh, you know, and to go back to the Bud Light boycott, I think what we have here is a movement that it was a call for a boycott, but partly dependent on already ongoing factors such as, you know, the, the conservative critique of woke corporations, the continuing political polarization in this country in which a lot of people believe that political identity is a very important part of their personal brand and so forth. And so when those things come together, I think they can succeed. But it's really hard to predict in advance when they'll happen. All right. Larry Glickman, thank you so much for joining us on The Weeds. It's been a pleasure, JQ. Thank you. So there's no clear answer on whether or not boycotts work, at least not all the time. But there does seem to be a clear answer on why they happen. 
Like Wizzy said earlier, money remains the ultimate form of power, even if you don't have a lot of it. And this is one of the many times that people feel utterly powerless. Those supporting the BDS movement and those critics pushing back against it are all trying to find ways of influencing a conflict that most of us have very little control over. I think it's safe to say that a lot of us feel powerless, no matter where we stand. That's all for us today. Thank you to Wizzy Kim and Lawrence Glickman for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Krishna Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. We had additional editorial assistance this week from Catherine Wells, Brian Walsh, Caroline Hauck, Julia Rubin, and Swathi Sharma. You can find more coverage of the Israel-Hamas war at Vox.com. I'm your host, John Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com slash give. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.